0: Let us bow our heads in prayer. Father, what we do not know, teach us. What we do not have, give us. What we are not, kindly make us. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The second word from the cross. The reading is found in the Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 23. Verses 39 to 43, Luke chapter 23, beginning at the 39th verse. Then one of the criminals who were hanged, blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God? seeing you are under the same condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we deserve the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. 2021 was a particularly difficult year in the life of my mother. Towards the latter half of that year, she developed an arthritic condition. This would cause her a lot of pain in her joints. The pain could best be described as excruciating But even more excruciating was the sight of her agony. There were times when, with every step that she'd take, she'd drop a tear or two. I bet anyone in that kind of a situation would naturally question God as to why He would let them suffer so miserably. And that is the point where I believe most of us get it completely wrong. Because the question somewhere down the line assumes that our sins, our sinful estate, is not all that grievous to merit such a hard treatment from the hand of God. Somewhere in the depths of our beings, We are not truly mindful of the exact scale and magnitude of our sins. Just like King Azza in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Why I am citing his example is because Azza was a man with real good intentions. He had decided to move the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, so he loaded it on top of a bullock cart as opposed to carrying it on the shoulders, which was what the commandment was for carrying the Ark. So he put it on a bullock cart thinking that that would make things easy. But the cart stumbles along the way. And as a result, it topples the Ark of the Covenant and it's just about to fall into a miry pit when Azar in a state of sheer desperation, to save that ark from desecrating itself, catches hold of it with his bare hands. What do you think God did in that moment? God killed him because he committed cosmic treason by catching hold of the Ark of the Covenant. You were not supposed to touch the Ark of the Covenant. It was that holy and you were that unholy. Today we form so many excuses around our sins. We tend to think that our sins Are trivial. Our deceitful hearts trick us into thinking that our disobedience is trivial. Sin only seems trivial when God's holiness seems trite. Every act of sin is committed against the Lord of hosts, the Most High God who created the heavens and the earth. In the 51st Psalm, David cries out, Against you, you only have I sinned. And that completely changes the scope and magnitude of our sins. You know, that's why the Apostle keeps exhorting us to make our calling and our election sure. in 2 Peter 1.10. To work out the salvation that God is actively working in us. And we can't do this by thinking less terribly of our sins than we should. Now, coming to this thief on the cross, he too is undergoing an excruciating pain. Today, if you are demonstrating a bad behavior because you're in a lot of pain, I plead with you to take a look at this thief and find some inspiration. I have good reasons to assume that this thief wasn't as personally tutored or instructed in the ways of holiness as Jesus' disciples were, but he seems to have understood what even the disciples didn't, that Jesus Christ the Messiah had come on earth as a suffering servant. And he had come as a suffering servant to save a lost people. The moment the thief calls on to Jesus, saying, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, it says a lot about the kind of understanding he has about, number one, his own sinful estate. This is also evident from his former statement, we deserve justly the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Number two, Of the messianic ministry of Jesus? That the Messiah was supposed to come and suffer and die for the sake of his redeemed? And this is what the disciples could never come to believe. That Jesus Christ was supposed to die in order to bring about redemption. Despite all that the Lord had taught them for three long years. They were marked with such unbelief in their hearts that they couldn't come to terms with this simple and salient fact about the Lord's death. And number three, the Lordship slash the deity of Jesus over all of creation. Lord, that means he hailed Jesus as Lord over all the earth remember me i do not claim an entry to heaven i have done nothing that can justify me i don't even think that i have a place in heaven so if you could just remember me that'll be enough when you come into your kingdom this is the messiah the son of david this is the messiah he's probably even making an eschatological statement, who knows. You know, the thief had the heart of a true convert. I don't know how it was possible for the thief to have a heart like this apart from the sovereign grace of God itself. He never asks for any justice. Hmm? Think about that. Because when God meets our justice, it is a dreadful spectacle. As may be witnessed from the episode of Nadab and Abihu and Azar and Ananias and Sapphira, he understood that he has no case before God that can put him in a right standing with him. There will be many pounding their fists on the gates of heaven. And what case will they bring? Lord, didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we do that in your name? And Jesus will look at them and he will say, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. We ought only to plead to be remembered and shown mercy. Not justice, mercy. Because to be remembered by God is a Christian's biggest consolation. Whether in sickness or in good health, whether in richness or in poverty, God never forgets those who belong to the household of faith. He will be their rock. He will be their redeemer. And he will be their refuge when they are most helpless and most cast down. And this I say with a great deal of confidence, looking at how bountifully the Lord has dealt with my mother during her days of agony. The Lord has been kind and increasingly abounding in grace and mercy towards her. In every dark providence, under every dispensation of grace, Jesus' love stays the same. We must learn to observe the hand of God in all these situations. A lot of times, what happens is people question God as to why he allows so much bad to happen to the good people on earth. That's because people think that there are actually good people on this earth. But Paul is of a different opinion, there is no one good, no not one, because if I truly understood who God is, and if I truly understood the depths of my transgressions, the question would then subvert to why shouldn't God treat me infinitely more severely than how he normally does. There was only one time in all of human history when a bad thing happened to someone good. Only one time. That was 2,000 years ago. And this man, as R.C. Sproul said, he volunteered. Today, some of the most influential Christian voices and Christian megachurches would want believers to think less terribly of their sins and thereby take less seriously the implications of the cross. This creates a deplorably shallow regard for the place of suffering and an outsized view of God's grace, under which all sins obtain a free pass. All sins, whether it be Fornication or adultery or idolatry or drunkenness. The Lord loves them all, doesn't He? This is what has been taught in the mega churches of today. And it's abhorrent to say the least. I'd want to ask these brothers of mine what gospel are you raising a banner of? Is there no limit to which you can dilute its essence? A couple of days back, I encountered an interesting book on apologetics. For those of you who do not know what apologetics is, it's simply a systematized way of making a defense of your faith. The title of this particular book read as follows, How to Talk About Jesus Without Looking Like an Idiot. A panic-free guide to having natural conversations about your faith. <laughs> I'm pretty sure youngsters would flock together to get hold of one copy. The title's so captivating after all. I sometimes wonder what Apostle Paul would have had to say to this. Whatever happened to preaching Christ crucified even if it meant foolishness to the outside world? We are constantly tempted to add an intellectual credibility to the gospel. We want it to resonate with the sense and the sensibilities of the unregenerate and the unconverted. And so we have all these big, big arguments that appeal to the carnal way of thinking. In our own sweet ways, Despite the best of our intentions What we are doing is We are putting God to the test The exact same way The other thief on the cross did When he said If you are the Christ Save yourself Save yourself from what? From embarrassment? Embarrassment coming from where? Feminism? Egalitarianism? secularism, liberalism, our gospel presentation must be culturally relevant. It should conform to all of these isms and schisms, doesn't it? Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. Why bother to sound like an idiot when you can sound a lot smarter, a lot wiser than you actually are? My friends, my friends... The gospel stands to give an offence to the world. Do not attempt to save it from embarrassment. There is no way you can try saving the gospel from embarrassment without first compromising its integrity. By despising doctrine, you inevitably read into the text what it does not have to say. And this way, you let the train of your life run off the rails, making headway into a sea of confusion. You become so intoxicated and probably even find some virtue in going on learning things that are absolutely unprofitable, but will never ever come to a knowledge of truth, of biblically grounded convictions and affirmations. You may even succeed to a tremendous degree in advancing your church's growth. But slowly and surely, you will be stifling the sheep of God's flock. Because your reliance is on something that doesn't make you look foolish as when preaching Christ crucified. Let's hear, let's hear it from the Bible itself. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's read from verses 18 to 30. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. The things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. You know, if you think about it, that cross upon which the thief clung was not his own. It was his master's, on whose blessed feet He'd now rest his soul for all eternity. He didn't have any church membership. He had no clue of church polity or the doctrines of grace or anything like that. All he did was to count himself among the least of the least, to be even remembered by the Lord of hosts. And the Lord accorded him saintship and that which was equivalent to any prophet or any apostle. Come to think of it, it doesn't surprise me to know that the Lord equated greatness in God's kingdom with lowliness at heart in the chapter just preceding this one. Turn with me to Luke 22. Let's read verses 25 to 27. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. The Son of God became the servant of God just to redeem us, to quicken us, sanctify us and call us home when he shall also glorify us. Can there be any words to describe the wonder and majesty of his faithfulness unto us? I'm sure no length of sermon would be sufficient in doing this. I I don't know what the thief would have felt when he beheld the abject beauty of the Lord. And then hearing the divine accolade coming straight out of his lips. Must we also not be in a similar awe, knowing that the same blessedness of everlasting life applies to each and every one of us who believes in his name? Our absolution is safeguarded, our destiny is sealed, and our name is etched upon the pages of the book of life by the very blood of our Lord. Amen. He who was faithful to have begun this good work in us will also be faithful to take it to fruition. And this I know, for I know whom I believed. And I know that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Second Timothy one twelve. and so through all the length of days thy goodness faileth never. Good Shepherd, may I sing thy praise within thy house forever. Amen